This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Go-Go. I'm the artist formerly known as Dr. Shane, who's lost his voice, but still here in spirit. Thanks to the team from Radiotherapy for bringing us through to 11 o'clock. We've got you for an hour of science now. In the studio with me is Dr. Linden. Good Good morning, morning, Dr. Shane. What a beautiful morning. Lovely (coughs) fog this morning, clearing out to a beautiful sunny Sunday. That will happen? Yeah. Cool. That's what I've read. (laughs) I've got the same weather app as everyone else, but that's what I can say. That's what's going to happen. And back from New York, finally, is Dr. Lauren. Hello. It's so exciting to be back. It's it's, it's one of those weird things when you walk back into a building and you've been gone for a long time, but it feels like you were here yesterday. That's what I just had. Smells the same, looks the same. What does Triple R smell like? (laughs) I don't know if I should just go, no. (laughs) No, it's just got that, I don't know. I think it's not actually the smell. It's the it's the feel of the place. Like, yeah. you know, it's got so much energy and you look around and everyone's here doing what they love and it's just so exciting to be back. Yeah. I'm really pumped. Well, it's good to have you back. Yes. Uh, we have some great guests coming up, but we're going to start off with some news as usual. Dr. Linden, do you want to start? Because Dr. Lauren's forgotten how to do it, so we, <laughs> we'll give you an example. Okay. Then, All right. You know. That sounds good. That's good. Uh, so there were so many exciting news stories this week. I had real trouble trying to pick my favourite one, but I settled on one about bird poo <laughs> um, because I thought it was interesting. We know that bird poo, you know, can sometimes be a sign of good luck, but it also... <laughs> Who, ca- can I, who came up with that BS? <laughs> Someone who's Does it make you feel better? Like it makes you feel better when you get shat on? It's about looking for the silver lining, I yeah. guess, in a cloud. Yeah, there's silver in it. Yeah. That's, and there's also a lot of nitrogen in it, which is a lovely segue into the Scientific Reports article that I read this week showing that bird poo can be really good for coral reefs. Now, I like this study because not only was it an interesting topic and it talks about a whole sort of ecosystem, uh, seabirds are important, coral reefs are important, they're both actually under a bit of threat, but it also just used a good old-fashioned method, just a good old experimental design for seeing how coral reefs behaved in different environments. So this research, it was a single author paper actually, this um, this female researcher who's based in New Zealand but also South Africa, she took two coral reefs that were near two Fijian islands. One was a small island that had a big rookery on it, lots and lots of seabirds. She had some coral there and then she used another coral reef near another Fijian island where there were no birds and she just took some coral, little coral nubbins, mm-hmm. new word, little nubbins, little <laughs> baby corals and made a kind of a farm array of them plonked them down and then a little array near the island where there were lots of birds and just let them grow for a year and see how they compared. So she kind of had some that were originally from the bird island and some that were originally from not the bird island and then she swapped them around Mm -hmm. and it turns out that it doesn't matter which kind of corals you grow, if you grow them near an island that has a lot of birds on it and so there's a lot of guano and there's a lot of nutrients like leaching out into the sea, the coral grows much faster, mm. up to four times four faster. Times. Yeah, That's in a, a year. It's yeah. a lot. And the pictures in this article are very convincing. Um, I mean, there's a lot of work that's been done looking at corals and nutrients because most of the extreme nutrients that come into coral reefs come from human-induced things and they're generally considered to be bad because they can change the reproductive issues with coral and they can promote algal blooms and that kind of stuff. Mm. But this paper is showing that natural nutrient boosts for coral reefs in pristine environments where there's lots of fish to help keep algae at bay Mm. can be really 
really beneficial. So does that mean that we can artificially do that to help some of the coral reefs around the world, presumably, you know, fertilise the reefs? Uh, I, I think I think the beauty of this study is that it was looking at coral reefs in a pristine environment. Mm. Lots of other studies that have looked at that, pushing nutrients into coral reefs, mm. have looked at reefs that are already have some other stresses, so they've mm. been overfished or, you know, there's changes in the environment. So I think you'd have to be really careful mm. about mm. doing that. That's kind of what I read from the paper. And interestingly, well, maybe a little bit sadly, the small island that had the rookeries on it got decimated by a cyclone a couple of years ago. Mm. So it's it's very sad, but also might be interesting then to look at a before and after study. Yeah. Mm. Uh, most of the rookeries have gone now, so they could go back and have another look and see mm. how the corals are behaving mm. after that. Interesting. So, yeah, interesting. very interesting stuff. And just, you know, just <coughs> a few hours away in the South Pacific, mm. this science being yeah, done. Yeah, very cool. Mm. Dr. Lauren, before we ask you about news, where have you been and what have you been doing? Yeah, on a big, long <coughs> holiday. No. <laughs> um, so I've been over in the States for about 18 months uh, working with a startup company affiliated with Harvard and Cornell and MIT. So Are they universities? They're, they're little ones. <laughs> a few yeah. people have heard of them. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's funny, actually. So I'm a little biased, but Melbourne University has always been my prettiest University. Mm-hmm. I've loved all the old buildings at yeah. Melbourne, and and I think unfortunately Cornell might have might have taken over. Yeah. Really, because it is. It's on top of the hill, so then it's this beautiful. There's waterfalls all around. So you walk out of Cornell and you walk down past a waterfall to get to the town, and you know half the year it's covered in snow. Yeah. It was beautiful. They do a lot of. Again, they do a lot of bird research in Cornell, do they? They do. They've got a, a, a huge, um, I'm not going to try and say the actual name properly because I always get it wrong, a big bird section. <laughs> but it's amazing. So they have a whole area and they have a whole area. area or something. Ornithology? Ornithology, I think, but I always wreck it and they always yell at me. (laughs) (laughs) But it's amazing and they have um, beautiful botanic gardens up there and they do a lot of work looking at different, uh, yeah, fauna and flora in the area. It's, um, it was a beautiful spot and the work was, incredibly exciting and it was great Bi- to yeah, yeah so it was binokai related so i was working with a group doing a binokai project over there which was great and really really proud to be part of that too and then mm. back to melbourne now and yeah it's gonna be great cool so. and some news some news some news so my news is um a little bit i guess political to start with i thought you know jump straight in oh, but it's <laughs> just like i'm doing it i'm back that's up. it Edgy, let's go that's it but but no, i've been watching i think as i think a lot of us have been watching about the progress of, of um, gene editing and crispr and cas9 and all the rest and and the ethics behind this you know and obviously we all heard about the the twins that were born in china last year mm. that were edited to avoid the hiv virus as they get older and there's been a lot of, you know, I guess calls from different people about what we should actually do to protect, I guess, you know, the, the moral interests of society. In the when species. We, in the species, yeah. Because yeah. we don't know a huge amount about what some of the longer term effects could be with some of these techniques. And so uh, there's been a call this week in Nature from 18 researchers, including two of the people that actually invented CRISPR. So uh, Dr. Feng Zhang from MIT and Harvard and Emmanuel Charpentier from the Max Planck uh, Institute. And they are part of this call um, of scientists that have come out and said, uh, we think there should be a five-year moratorium on using CRISPR in in embryos. So Mm. in, in doing, you know, gene editing 
to try and have you know i guess these designer babies as the the catchphrases about it but it's um it's a very interesting thing because you know obviously these are the leaders in the field and they're coming out and saying we're not happy with people kind of doing small projects without perhaps mm. engaging the broader community but it brings that interesting debate about you know who who gets to decide you know is yeah. it is it the individual researcher or the ethics at that university or should you know we all be having a say and if you're a parent or mm. a soon to be parent mm. and you know there is a gene error that can be corrected you would not feel good about a five-year moratorium yeah. holding off on that. I, I, you know, this is where sometimes the ethics is slow to catch up with technology yeah. and the idea of you not being able to correct a potentially life-threatening problem in a child because science and the ethics around it hasn't really worked it out yet, mm. even though you know that that correction would be possible. You know, mm. in some cases, this is going to come up. Yeah. And, it's pretty hard. And I wonder, I mean, have they given any caveats to the moratorium about what are they going to use those five years, <coughs> what they want to use those yeah. five years for? Yeah, so, so it's, it's basically a, around the idea that, that there just needs to be more discussion in the field. Mm. Um, so I think one of the really big controversies was with the scientist in China last year was that no one knew, you know. So it mm. was one of these things where he went to a conference and said, surprise, these babies have been born. <laughs> yeah. And and I guess, you know, often with a lot of, and, you know, I guess we could debate for hours whether this is right or not, but a lot of scientific methods as they're being developed happen through collaboration with a lot of different people. And there's a lot mm. of talk about what it means. And I think um, the reason this really shook up the field was because it was a surprise. Yeah. Know. Here's these babies. One more's on the way. How common are these kind of calls within different scientific fields? I mean, I don't know a lot of... There's not a lot of moratoriums in the climate science space, I guess. But most of them have been in biology. Yeah. And, you know, especially around the use of stem cells. Mm -hmm. you know, there was a lot of issues around that. And, and in, in many regards, that promoted some very good research of the mm. use of pluripotent stem cells as opposed to embryonic stem cells. Mm. And, you know, that, that's been a really positive thing for, for science and for the community. Mm. But in this case, I mean, one of, the, one of the issues, of course, with CRISPR-Cas9 is that it's simple, mm. it's easy, and it's cheap, yeah. which means the idea of only the big Western nations being able to do it, mm. you know, and like the nuclear so the weapons industry is a good example of this, is not mm. something that's going to be kept in check. So small rogue nations mm. that won't follow international guidelines will be able to do this sort of editing quite readily. Mm. Mm. And so in some cases, this kind of call isn't really going to catch those sort of possible issues? No, I mean, and China's a good example of this. I mean, mm. whether or not they abide by these rules is a, yeah. you know, is a big international question, and, and it's probably in their best interest to do so, but, you know, they have over a billion people, and yeah. this might solve a lot of problems for them, and the downstream yeah. side effects are, you know, to be fair, <clears throat> it's not like Western nations have a good track record of this with many of our medications mm. so mm. we it's hard for the rest of the world to stand up on its high horse and say don't do that it might yeah. be you know, because many mistakes have been made over the years Different from other things. areas of science as well so mm. i think it's a it's one where the ethics net has to speed up mm. to mm. me because this is going to happen yeah it already has happened yep. and my understanding is that there were other embryos ready to be utilized that's in correct. China. so it wasn't I, just yeah. the two yep there's, I, I believe <clears throat> there actually is probably one due very soon yeah, yeah. that's right yeah yeah, yeah. 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 Look, I think uh, what I do like about this is that it's, I guess, bringing up these um, debates and these questions for the, the entire community. Mm. You know, it's really raising this as, a, as an issue and letting everyone 
you know, be aware that the scientists working in the field are aware, um, you know, that there are some issues mm. and some, some things that really need to be talked about. Uh, but at the same time, rem- yeah, like you said before, Dr. Shane, remembering that this has amazing potential. You know, this is a therapy that could absolutely change families mm. and, and their ability to have healthy children. Yeah. And that's what we've got to keep mm. working towards. Yeah. The interesting thing for people to remember is there are very... There is a limited number of illnesses mm. that are sort of single gene cause. Definitely. So a lot of them are multi-gene causes, and we don't even know what all the genes are involved in them. So mm-hmm. there's a few where a single gene edit can, yes, switch something off, or mm. like in the case of them being not able to get HIV, you know, this is this is really interesting. And one of the reasons they chose HIV is because of that. Mm-hmm. But they, you know, if you if you said, well, what about epilepsy, for example? Well, I think there's identified over thir- or 25 or 30 genes already, and that's just yeah. the start. Mm-hmm. You cannot you know, use CRISPR-Cas9 at this point to deal with some of those things. So mm. it's only going to be applicable in certain areas, but it is interesting. Yeah. As a research tool, though, it's extraordinary, but yeah. how it, you know, plays into the ethics of clinical practice is different. Yeah. Jeez, Dr. Lauren. <laughs> Welcome it, thought, back. Yeah, exactly. And next week, I promise I'll talk about something much lighter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's uh, all cool. All right, folks, we're going to take a break for some music, and we'll be back in a moment with our first guest. You're listening to 3 Triple R. 3 Welcome back, everybody. You're listening to Einstein Go on 3RRR. In the studio with us now is Danielle Eastick. She's from the School of Life Sciences at La Trobe University. Danielle, welcome to RRR. Thanks for having me. Now, you work on one of these, these sort of giant birds, right? The, the cassowary... How do you say it? Cask? Cask. Cask. Yes. <laughs> and can you describe this for us? It's, it's sort of... It's big. Yeah, yeah. So it's a, a, a quite a big structure on top of their head. Yeah. Um, it's covered in a keratin layer, so similar to our fingernails, our bird beaks, um, and inside there's lots of vascular tissue as well. Uh-huh. Yeah. And how big is the bird itself? The bird itself, uh, they can grow up to, I think, about 160 to 70 centimetres tall. It's like a metre and a half. Is right? that yeah. bigger than an emu? It's like uh, as big so as you. Oh, <laughs> that is as big as me, yeah. 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 Quite yeah. tall, a bit, a bit smaller than an emu, but I think they're heavier than an emu. Mm, okay. Yeah. Yeah. okay. So they have this thing on their on their head, and what, what's been the previous mindset around that? That it's sort of like a, some sort of mating sort of scenario. Has that been the the general school of thought? Yeah, there's been a few different theories. So one was mating. Um, another is a protective structure or a yeah. weapon. Yep. Um, and another is a sound resonance chamber for the, oh, wow. they make a really low frequency booming noise. So yeah, to right. sort of resonate that through the rainforest. I mean, on the second one, has anyone ever seen these things headbutting with these? Like, apparently, yeah, <laughs> apparently they have, but they have a pretty, um, severe d- dagger on their toenail so right. most often they use that when fighting so they sound yeah like, they sound like just such just lovely birds. <laughs> <laughs> don't get me wrong they won't attack without you know a provocation yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah or dr lawrence like that um, <laughs> i just don't have a dagger on my arm i'm really yeah. jealous no, I mean, you might get one now you might get one you know, i know good appendage yeah um where, where do we find these birds 
They're up in Queensland in the rainforest, so mm. northern Queensland. Okay, so look yeah. out. Look, look out. <laughs> now, now you've been working on trying to determine what this structure is on their head, which basically looks like a fan, doesn't it? It's like a, a bit like a fan. Yeah, there. a little bit like one, yeah. yeah not yeah. a blow air fan. No. A, a <laughs> wave, wave and cool exactly. yourself fan. <laughs> yes. Yeah. yeah. And how have you been investigating that? Yeah, so we just had one question, and that was whether they use it for thermoregulation. Mm. So what we did was uh, we used a thermal camera and we took images of the cask over different temperatures. Uh, so we used some cassowaries down here in Victoria and then all the way up to northern Queensland. One's in zoos, right? There's not wild cassowaries running around. There is not. Not <laughs> okay, in Victoria so anyway. Just calming people. <laughs> yeah. North Victoria. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, yes, just captive ones. Um, yeah, and we took photos with a thermal camera and then analysed the images. Hmm. Yeah. What made you think that thermal regulation would be a reason for the cask to exist? Yeah, so my sup- one of my supervisors, Kylie Robert, teaches first-year zoology classes at La Trobe, and she teaches one about thermoregulation in the Toku Toucan bill, so they've got a really mm. large bill. Um, and then she watched <clears throat> a... Uh, is it Inside Nature's Giants, where they dissect giant animals? Um, and she saw inside the cask and thought, oh, it kind of looks similar to the inside of a Toko Toucan bill. So that's where she got the idea from. And mm. then, yeah, they had it as an honours project and the rest yeah. is history. Yeah. yeah. So you were mentioning that you're saying you were doing your work on the ones in Victoria. Do you think there's any difference in ones that were born and bred in Victoria to those that are in Queensland because of our different climates? Yeah, it's hard we didn't look into that too mm. much um i don't know if they've been down here long enough for any sort of evolution to be happening um so it, it'd definitely be interesting to look further into that but we can't we don't mm. know the answer to that yeah now i, I want to say dimetrodon but i could be wrong one of these older dinosaurs that had you know, very early ones that had these massive structures on their backs Right. And there's a whole range of them. Like, it wasn't just one. I think um, you, you find them on all sorts of dinosaurs, many dinosaurs. Yeah, yeah. Is, is the thinking that this is similar? Yeah. So, um, <clears throat> obviously, physiology doesn't really fossilise, so we need to um, study extant species to understand what these structures might have been used for in extinct species. Um, so, yeah, just the fact that they look really similar um, it, it could indicate that they are using them for the same reason. I reckon there's a whole lot of people out there who would buy a T-shirt that says physiology doesn't fossilise. <laughs> That's a great line. Yeah. <laughs> so what did you find then? What did you, using all these thermal images from all these Victorian cassowaries, mm. what, what did you find? Are they using it for thermal heat regulation and how? Mm, they are. So uh, what they're doing is at cooler temperatures, they constrict the blood vessels in the cask and that's keeping the warm blood in their body so they don't lose that heat at the top. And then as the outside temperature heats up, they'll dilate those vessels and that warm blood will go up and because it's an uninsulated structure, so there's no fat, um, that heat is radiated at the top and the blood's cooled before it comes back down into the body. Wow. And how perfect do you think the shape of this cask is to do this task you know obviously this has been an evolutionary trait that has developed why is it the shape that it is yeah i don't actually know the answer to that um so looking inside it well what it seems like there lots seems to be a lot of superficial blood vessels so that's what they'd be using to uh, radiate that heat out um we don't know if it has evolved 
purely for this purpose or whether it is like the Toko Toucan Bill and they used it to eat first and then it mm. evolved on top of that as a heat regulation. Because mm. it's fascinating to me when you look at some of the evolution here because you know, you've, got, you've got dinosaurs, you've got lizards and you've got birds and we know there's a evolutionary connectivity between them. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, there's a lot of lizards that have these structures, mm. right? And these are, these are, you know, creatures that come out of a cold environment into the heat to heat up and presumably... They use it in the opposite way. Well, maybe they use it in the opposite mm. of the way to the bird, where they use it to draw the heat in, mm. yeah. as opposed to release the heat out. But the yeah. structures are very, you know, on backs of many lizards, you see very similar structures, right? Yeah, yeah, true. Yeah, mm. I, I haven't really thought too much about lizards, to be honest. But mm. yeah, they definitely could be. Or when they overheat in the sun, if they mm. stay out there for too long, then they could be using it to get rid of that excess heat as well. Yeah. How, is there any um, variation in size of this thing? Like, mm. you know, first of all, I mean, does it grow with them as they grow or do they start off with quite big ones? And is there, there a gender difference in the size of these things? Because usually when you see these structures, especially in birds, they're very gendered. Mm. Um, yep. is, is there that sort of differentiation between them? Yes. So um, they don't, they start off with a little stump when mm. they're born and it grows with the cassowary so it's about fully grown when they're three to four years old um males are actually smaller than females in this right. species um so similar to an emu they do all the parental care after the chicks are hatched and they look after the eggs um so that's another reason why the theory about it being a mating structure as well is there because it is bigger in the females but mm. that could just be because females are a bigger bird so they might need a bigger structure Mm. so do you think this opens the door to analyze other features of other birds that might also be used for heat regulation you mentioned the toucan Mm -hmm. are are there any other species that your supervisor's like oh now we can look at (laughs) i don't know lyrebird tails or something else that could be used for heat regulation yeah i guess so there are a couple of other species that do have small casks like guinea fowls um hornbills have them as well so um actually someone has looked into the hornbill and they are using it as well so yeah 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 definitely it does open doors for any structures that look similar to this and i've just had a scary thought thinking about climate change about a much warmer world how big these yeah things exactly. can get how yeah. punk these cassowaries could look <laughs> <laughs> That's a scary. Yeah. <laughs> it's a disturbing thought. Mm. Yeah. I like the fact you can bring almost anything back to climate. <laughs> yeah, sorry. It's, it's gold. Just thinking about increasing temperatures and also the fact that they happen in tropical regions exactly. where the humidity changes and those mm-hmm. kinds of things. Mm-hmm. I know mm-hmm. lots of people have looked at how lizards change their behaviour and their gender in warmer climates and whether we would see a change in the size or behaviour mm-hmm. of these features. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And it's very cool stuff. And it comes back, get out the thermal camera and play with it because the yeah. stuff you see is amazing right? really with cool. animals. You, I mean, you would have seen that, like just this, this variation in temperature that you wouldn't otherwise know about mm-hmm. and how, how much detailed data there is mm-hmm. in there just yeah, by exactly. looking, looking in the infrared um, you know, just outside our visual range, which is cool. Mm-hmm. You wonder, yes. I, I mean, I'm not sure what, that, what animals see in that, that range and you know what they can they can see mm, you know, be, exactly be fascinating yeah. to, to know as well so i wonder if you know especially animals that have these features how much they can see the infrared aspects of of it in in other animals of the same type mm. 
Mm. Don't know. Don't know much about the eyeballs of. Um, is it? <laughs> What's the I, eyeball of a bird? I was just sitting there going, "Don't ask me. Don't ask me." <laughs> she's only been back a week. I'll do some research and get back to you. Yeah, you know that there's two, and that's that's about. That's it. Yeah, that's yeah. it. They work well. Danielle, thanks so much for coming and chatting to us. No You're on to your PhD now as well. I am. Yes, yep. I'm working on microbat reproduction now. Right, cool. Yeah. No thermal different. camera for that. No thermal camera. No. no. Yeah. <laughs> Wouldn't hurt just to get one in there. Just in case you never, <laughs> never know what you can never find. Never know what you can find. Yeah, they're no longer the ultrasound, but you know, like, yeah. yeah. Ultrasound, don't use an ultrasound, it messes with bats. I don't like it. Don't like it. <laughs> Thanks so much for coming in and chatting to us, and uh, good luck me. with the work. Danielle Eastick is from the School of Life Sciences at La Trobe University. We're going to take a break for some more music, and we'll be back in just a sec, folks. Three, triple, In the studio now is Dr. Amy Baxter. She's from the Department of Biochemistry and Genetics at La Trobe University's Institute of Molecular Science. Amy, welcome to Triple R. Thank you very much for having me. It's great to have you in. We we want to learn all about cell death. Mm-hmm. Apparently it's happening all the time. It, it disturbs is. me. So, uh, first of all, why do our cells die? I mean, this has been something that's fascinating to me, especially when you look at some jellyfish and other other creatures where it doesn't happen in the same way, or it doesn't happen at all, I think, in some creatures. Mm. I mean, effectively immortal cells. I mean, why do our cells need to die? Well, uh, cells, they have a finite lifespan, I guess. So they, they do get old over time. Um, the DNA gets old, and mm-hmm. um, they just they just need to be... Uh, cleared by the body before they start behaving aberrantly, basically. Mm. Yeah. And, and why is it that, you know, in, in some animals that doesn't happen or it happens over, I mean, what's the discrimination between times? You know, so in some animals, obviously, they live much shorter lives. Yeah. Whereas, you know, if you're, you're a human or a, a, you know, one of those turtles, you know, can live hundreds and hundreds of years. Obviously, yeah. their processes are different. Well, uh, look, to be honest, I mostly work with humans and other mammalian species. I, I haven't really thought about it for other animals. Um, I, I guess actual cell death, um, like how, how long it takes for an individual cell to die in an animal that lives a long time, um, uh, yeah, I, I, I'm really not sure. It's yeah. a really interesting question. Yeah. yeah. You need to get life science. <coughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Danielle, back yeah. in here. I find, I find this cell, you know, because mm. I want to live forever. Um, <laughs> I want to know how to fix this. I'll get back but, to you on that. Yeah. So, so with, with us, I mean, with our cells, yeah. what, so what's happening when cell death occurs? So... Uh, the type of cell death that I work with mostly at the moment is a, a programmed form of cell death called apoptosis. Mm. So this is, um, it's triggered by, for example, when a cell becomes old or damaged, um, various uh, chemical uh, occurrences happen where um, a, a sort of a cascade of events occur within the cell telling the cell, okay, you're old now, we mm-hmm. need to sort of break you down and package you off and send you off to be cleared by other cells in the body. Okay. Yeah. And and the chemicals start, like, start that process. So does the cell, I guess the question for me is, does the cell kill itself off or yes. does it go where it gets killed off? So there are two different main pathways of apoptosis um, called the intrinsic and extrinsic pathways. Um, so... When, when a cell becomes old, for example, things like reactive oxygen species, which are um, just uh, byproducts of cellular processes when they accumulate too much, mm-hmm. this is where the intrinsic pathway will become triggered and, um, and apoptosis will occur that way. Other factors such as external factors um, will bind to the membrane of the cell um, 
when, say, there are dead cells in the nearby area, just basically saying it's time to shut down and, hmm. and be cleared away. Okay. Yeah. So that's, it's obviously quite a lot of going, quite oh, a lot yeah. going on. There's a lot of processes to happen there. Yeah. So what happens if it doesn't work? Does the cell just stay there forever? Or? Yeah, so that's a very interesting question and that's what, um, that's why it's really, really important to look at this. So, um, when, when apoptosis, uh, doesn't go well or when when cells aren't cleared properly they can accumulate and um, eventually uh, the membrane of the cell will break down and essentially the guts of the cell will be leaked out into the extracellular surroundings and this is a really big no-no for the immune system Mm. so um, it's a big warning sign for immune cells to quickly infiltrate to the area and this leads to inflammation Mm. Um, ah so that's sort of what's happening at the cellular level when you have inflammation i did not know that that's right so so during apoptosis um two really major events happen one is that cells release um find me signals which are these just little chemical signals saying quick come and get me i'm dying and the other one is uh, eat me signals and these are various um things exposed on the surface of the cell and um this is uh, a sort of um a message to neighboring cells um to come along and sort of in a nice tidy way come and kind of gobble them up and but before that process of membrane breakdown and intracellular contents can leak out yeah mm-hmm. and when oh, sorry oh, no, so yeah. i was, was going to say so you're saying you know obviously it causes inflammation yeah and i'm assuming too that because it's spewing up the cell guts into the yeah. body that could be quite widespread inflammation as well so absolutely I mean, so there are conditions where um sort of chronic accumulation of apoptotic cells leads to inflammation this can um, have impact on like various uh, auto in, in autoimmune conditions um, such as systemic uh, lupus erythematosus is mm. uh, characterized by um, uh, too many apoptotic cells basically and mm. failure to clear them away yeah mm. but then in other more acute conditions such as um, inflammatory bowel disease or asthma that's also associated with a uh, high accumulation of apoptotic cells and, and and poor clearance yeah so um in terms of like this is what we know amy and and that's i suppose stuff we've known for a little while about the way some of this happens i mean what, what have you been working on in your lab sort of looking at because yeah. presumably you know it's that control mechanism around what's happening in the breakdown and as you say if, right. if, if it doesn't get cleared you've yeah. got you've got yourself a pretty big problem yeah yeah so What's been known for quite a long time about apoptotic cells is that during this breakdown process, they form what are known as apoptotic bodies, which are these small fragments of the membrane, which um, kind of, they look like little baby versions of cells. They're just circular um, fragments. um, And it's believed, so previously it was thought that this was a really random process and it was just part of the cell breaking down. Mm -hmm. What we know now is that uh, the formation of apoptotic bodies actually occurs via a very regulated process and this was identified through some of the work in um, the lab I'm in now which is um, under Dr Ivan Poon at LIMS. Um, So what we've identified is that there are three distinct steps of the what we call the apoptotic cell disassembly process. Um, The first of those steps is um, the formation of membrane blood so the sort of surface of the cell starts to kind of bubble and bleb and the cytoskeleton uh, does some funny things. And then in the, the second stage, these lo- long protrusions are formed from, from the membrane um, and they go on to become apoptotic bodies. Um, so, 
yeah, this is this is the sort of novel work um, that's been observed in our lab. Yeah. And, and is there any way currently to control any of this? I mean, you know, yes. I mean, we know with a lot of autoimmune diseases, the control mechanisms you can control the inflammation itself, mm. but not the process causing it. Yeah. Well, so some really interesting pioneering work carried out by Ivan previously um, was that he performed a very extensive drug screen, um, sort of throwing all these. He used what was called a low pack. It was a um, library of pharmacologically active compounds mm-hmm. library. It's that a is com- a good yeah. acronym. <laughs> yeah, yeah. A backronym. <laughs> it's a commercially available um, drugs, basically. There was, I think, 1,280 of them in total, and you can just buy this as a researcher. And he he screened all of these drugs uh, looking at the process of apoptotic cell disassembly to identify you know, which drugs enhanced or inhibited various stages of the process. And um, through this drug screen, we pulled out a number of of, of drugs that we can now use to manipulate this pathway mm. um, in the laboratory. Hmm. And are there some kinds of cells in some areas of the body that respond better or worse to the drugs that you uh, and the team identify? Uh, absolutely, that's right. So um, in terms of why that is, uh, we're sort of still working on that, but definitely. So T-cells, for example, um, respond very well to the drugs that we have, which increase the formation of apoptotic bodies, whereas um, some different cell types, for example, uh, that already produce lots and lots of apoptotic bodies, those enhancing drugs don't work as well. So, mm. so yeah, it's very cell type specific. Mm. Yeah. Susan, that was going to be my next question because you, you, have, you have some cells that are kind of mighty cells in the body, like the T cells. They, they're really quite complicated. Yeah. And then you have other cells that are relatively simple, you know, skin cells and, you know, yeah. relatively simple. Is, is the apoptosis process the same in all cells or is it um, does it vary yeah well so really the main focus of the lab that i'm in now for the last couple of years we're all working really hard to characterize the process in different cell types and it is very very different so what we mm. see in um, blood cells such as monocytes is different from what we see in t-cells and again it's different from what we see in for example epithelial cells so cells of the gut and the lungs mm. yeah it does vary do, do you see any consistency between cells and their tasks so like for example cells that are part of the immune system all have a similar sort of task to do mm. um, whereas you know cells that are parts of the body you know like skin cells for example mm. are, you know, more static sort of cells you know in a sense I mean that's probably not the right way to describe yeah. them but are there any consistencies between those cell types because you know obviously you know immune cells do do a you know very complicated job mm. yeah um, no that's an interesting question I mean we do we do definitely see differences um, I think at this stage we're really at that point where we're now looking further into that in the lab um Mm. but certainly um you know epithelial cells for example cells in the gut when they die it's known that they sort of slough off um into into the gut but it's also been shown that it is important that they're cleared by other cells as well so um although they behave differently to say um a white blood cell um yeah we're we're still we still think that it's very important for them to undergo this disassembly process Yeah. yeah So with these drugs then, so from what you're saying, it sounds like the drugs will be more to help reduce the severity of the disease that's, that's right. already happening. So yeah. it's not like you can take a, you know, tablet in the morning and just know that all of your cells are going to be okay. Absolutely not. Yeah. I think it's so, so the way that, for example, in the context of clearance, um, you know, chronic inflammation has a lot of negative side effects. Um, it can, it's been linked to cancer. It's been linked to things like fibrosis in the lungs. So, 
uh, I guess the way that we're looking at it is from a, a reduction of the of the disease severity. That's exactly mm-hmm. right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah. And, and what what do you think will be the the downstream sort of clinical approach to this? Because I, I suppose there's one part where it's dealing with the way these cells are breaking down, and the other part is to augment the clearance process to yeah. deal with it better. I mean, does it? Are you getting a feel for which? Well, maybe it's both, but you know which sort of will be the more effective mm. way to go. Uh, we, we, this is this is the point we're at now. We're really mm. not sure. It's interesting though because it's not always enhancing the disassembly process that is favourable. So, for example, um, one of the researchers in our lab, um, Dr. Georgia Atkins Smith, who I believe has been on this show previously, actually. So she looks at disassembly in the context of an influenza model, mm. and um, she looks at. Uh, uh, blood, uh, thymocytes, oh, sorry, monocytes in, in the lungs. And what she sees is that, uh, the flu virus particles are actually carried within the apoptotic body fragments to propagate infection. So in that wow. setting, it's actually more favourable to block the process. Yeah, so it's, right. it's very, very, um, disease specific. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, if, if one virus does it too, presumably exactly. others would. No, that's have exactly the same, right. Yeah. yeah. The body is a complex thing. I'm sure learning. is. Yeah, that's why I did physics. <laughs> yeah. Just, just Gravity, space. Electric fields. Yeah. yeah, it's easy shit. Newton worked out most of it. It's not much to, easy stuff. Um, and and what so what's next for you in terms of this this role? Yeah. So next for me, I'm I'm as I mentioned, I'm really interested in epithelial cells, and um and I'm really just at the point now where we want to get stuck into some some disease models. So mm. my personal interests are uh, inflammation of the the lungs and the gut. So I'm looking at both an um, inflammatory bowel disease model and a, and a asthma model um, and really hoping to see if we can mani- manipulate this pathway and, and um, can have some effect on disease, yeah. Sounds great. Amy, thanks so much for chatting to us. Thank you so much for having me. It's our pleasure. Dr Amy Baxter is from the Department of Biochemistry and Genetics at the Trobe Institute for Molecular Science, where I should say we've had a lot of good guests over the last few years since um, that institute has been around. Mm-hmm. We're going to take a break uh, for some important station announcements, folks, and then we'll be back in a moment with our final guest for today. Three. Triple. Anyway, in the studio with us now is Dr. Jeff Rogers. He's the CEO of the company Wintermute, which is uh, now based out at La Trobe. Jeff, welcome back. We spoke to you last year shortly after you won the one of the Prime Minister's prizes. Uh, good to have you back. Yeah, good morning. Thanks for having me. Now, you first of all, we want to talk about um, you know, this new broad-spectrum antibiotic that, that your company's been working on because my understanding is that it's been quite a while since we've had any new valuable antibiotics in the system is it how long has it been yeah absolutely i think uh that's a really difficult question to answer actually i think some people would answer that by saying we haven't had a truly new antibiotic in the system since penicillin um because the rationale for drug development ever since then has been to essentially isolate uh genes or, or particular targets from bacteria or to take existing drugs and modify them, bolt something else onto them. So um, that's exactly what the world's screaming for at the moment is completely new classes of antibiotics to to, to fight resistance because that's the big problem. And, I mean, where are we seeing this resistance the most? Because often we talk... There's a lot of talk about people, you know, finishing their dose of antibiotics and so forth at home, but we, we also see massive use of antibiotics in the agricultural sector. I mean, where's where's the problem? 
It's it, short answer is it's everywhere. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. So a huge part of resistance can be traced back to animal use, food production, mm. uh, but also, I mean, this is a really interesting one for me. We tend to, as a community, I think, firstly, resist and antibiotic resistance is something the community thinks is coming. Yep, it's here now. It's already there. Yep. Uh, Seven hundred thousand people a year are dying from drug resistant infections. Mm. Right, so it's already here. And uh, what's interesting for me is that segues into a conversation, generally speaking, in the scientific community about and the clinical community about responsible use. We need to safeguard, mm. we need to use less, blah, blah, blah. There's obviously no doubt that um, evolutionarily speaking, the more you use something, yep. the more the bacteria have a chance to figure it out. But what's really interesting is that uh, researchers have isolated bacteria from deep underground and published this data, um, I think it was early last year, and what they found was bacteria underground that have never come into contact or believed to have never come into contact with humans, nor any of our antibiotics, um, and are already fully resistant to yeah, all the antibiotics wow. that we have. Mm. So, and why is that? Because they're competing for resources. They're fighting each other, and they actually develop their own antibiotic genes to use against each other. Yeah. So whether we, you know, whether it's food production or whether it's animals or whether it's our health, even if we stop using these things, the problem's going to get worse. Yeah. So now, so what have you been working on? This is a completely new antibiotic. Is it, I mean, first of all, is it completely new? And my second question is, is this something that we've artificially generated or found? Yeah, no. So it is completely new. Um, we believe that it is a, what we're, what, we've been looking for as a society as as a new in terms of being a new class of antibiotic mm. and it wasn't synthetically derived we have taken already well-known safe ingredients mm -hmm. and uniquely combined them with unique chemistry uh to form something that was just pure discovery you know sort of back to the penicillin days yeah. of, well we weren't expecting to see that but here it is and when you say a new class i mean what what sort of infections will it go after? Because we know certain, you know, certain antibiotics are used for certain types of infections. Often yeah, like depending narrow on, spectrums yeah, and yep. depending on where they are in the body and the type of thing they're after. Um, I mean, where does this one sit? Wherever you want it to sit is that the short good. answer, which that is great, good. right? Because <laughs> so the CDC um, in the US, you know, US government body responsible for for disease control. Uh, every year publish and update their biggest threats list, which is mm. the pathogens that they're most concerned about, you know, the, 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 the worst of the worst. Mm. And we've screened those and have activity against all of them, mm. which, you know, it, if you want to classify it, that's the definition of a broad-spectrum antibiotic yeah. right there. So we can really go anywhere with this thing. Um, and the other thing that's really nice about it is, generally speaking, when you synthesise something in a lab and it's synthetic, you don't know what it is, you find that... It's got activity against bacteria of some sort, but it also um, has, has unfortunately, has activity against mm, healthy cells too. Yeah. It's toxic. We don't see that. So that enables us to go into areas of the body very safely and yeah. it really opens up our application. So it won't be sitting on the toilet after taking these antibiotics? No. <laughs> so no. That's, a good, that's a good thing, right? That's yeah, a good well, thing. Yeah. So um, you were saying, you know, obviously it was a, a discovery, which I love. I love it when you hear those stories of something that's just, you know, unexpected. So how long has the process been? You know, what you've obviously had to do a lot of work since then to test against all these pathogens and look at side effects. How long are we talking? Oh, yeah, it's been, it's been a journey, and I wasn't there from the beginning, I have to say. So, I mean, it's a fascinating story for listeners. This was literally a basement discovery in the USA, mm -hmm. 
by a couple of guys, one who's still our chief scientific officer and is here in Melbourne now, uh, based here in Melbourne. Mm. These two guys got together. They were seeing back in 2010 increased resistance, cases of resistance in the hospitals over in the US and wanted to do something about it. So they wanted to do something different, not go cook up something synthetic or modify something that's already been around before. So they went to this thing called the FDA's generally regarded as safe list. It's a long, long list of ingredients that are already widely used, widely approved. Mm -hmm. And so they went through to find ingredients off that list that have never been used in an antibiotic before and to find out if they combined two or more of those, whether they could find a potent synergistic effect. Mm. Um, and as you can imagine, it was a lot of luck, a lot of work, um, high-throughput mm. screening. Surely and a pretty high-tech... Oh, sorry, surely yeah. a pretty high-tech back um, garage as well, right? Like, what sort of equipment do you even need to do this? Maybe that's a really dumb question, but I don't understand how... This can happen in a shed. Yeah, well, it depends on the kinds of ingredients you're using, right? Like, so a lot of these ingredients are widely available, especially given their safety profile. Mm. So, uh, for lack of a better analogy, you, you cookbook chemistry. Mm. It can be. Yeah. Mm. And you can literally, you know, make stuff in as simpler formats as, uh, as on the stovetop. Yeah. It depends on the ingredients you're working with, of course. Breaking good, not breaking yeah. bad. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So, so Jeff, why the alliance now, um, with Latrobe and coming, obviously the company's moved now back to Australia, you know, to Australia. I mean, what, why that change and, and what's the interaction with Latrobe? Yeah. So when I joined the company as CEO in 2017, um, to take this new product into phase one clinical trials. I was obviously, you can tell by my accent, I'm not American. Mm -hmm. I was from Australia and I'd worked um, and developed my last company within Melbourne and sold that out of here and knew the power of the um, Melbourne medical research community. Mm. And so I said to the company, we should run our clinical trials in Melbourne. Mm. That was the plan. Um, and we were going to keep our R&D, our science team over in the US with their families where they lived. Um, but it just proved too difficult. So mid last year, we took the decision to move here. Mm. Um, to, that is to, to shut down our labs in the US and move our labs and our staff over here, um, and hire locals here as well. Mm. So basically expand our footprint. Um, and Latrobe was just the perfect location for that to happen. Um, they had some they have truly world-class labs, um, turnkey, move-in ready, mm -hmm. and the staff and everyone over there was just fantastic in terms of helping us get integrated, get in, and collaborating with us as well with the, the Latrobe Institute of Molecular Science, who was just in here before, to help us develop these things and get them to market as fast as yeah. possible. It's nice to hear a university that can do that, like where industry can just move in mm. without the years of normal oh, yeah. processing. You know, to be able to do that quickly is a huge mm. advantage. Mm. Absolutely. Um, I can see why you would, you know, I wasn't aware that they had that that capability, but that's fabulous that they can do that. Yeah, no, and I should acknowledge uh, Walter Eliza Hall Institute mm. as well. Um, that's actually, they own the building that we're located within on Latrobe campus, right. so they're based out there as well. Um, and a big part of it was it's, it's the facilities and capabilities that they've built into yeah. that location. So, yeah, I mean, it's very rare. Mm. So is that then moving here going to make this phase one clinical trial easier what are the next steps now yeah absolutely so we're looking to get into phase one early next year which is very soon for an antibiotic you know these things have long long lead times mm. um but being here allows us to do that a lot faster than it would have in the u.s um just to be honest a lot less paperwork that you have to fill out 
but in a good way, not in a, you know, not in a safety concern type way, in a way where the Australian environment is really well set up for clinical trials. And is there an appetite in our community as well that maybe isn't in the US? Yeah, I think so. I think, you know, a lot of times we see Australia's best and brightest discoveries disappear overseas. Mm. And there's, there's been a strong push from the Australian government in recent years to get things coming, staying here and coming the other way, yeah. inbound investment. Um, and so, and that's working, and 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 we're mm. one data point in that now as well. That's great. Well, Jeff, look, it's it's you know we spoke last year, of course, and you did well with the Prime Minister's Prize, and and the company has you know something that the whole world needs, which is you know I mean it's always good when you you're in a commercial area where there's need, and not just push. Absolutely, you no. Know. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's actually quite rare, you know, the number of companies where there's a lot of push and not so much need is problematic. But it's great to have you back, and and at Latrobe, you know, t- today's been the Latrobe University Field Show. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't realise that until I got into the studio that all our guests were, were from La Trobe. But uh, good luck with this, and hopefully we can speed this through because, as you say, the number of people dying from these, you know, resistant infections is really quite substantial, and I assume going up very rapidly. So very rapidly, yeah. yeah. So thanks so much, and we look forward to uh, keeping you up to date on how we go. Yeah, it'll be great, and it'll be great to talk also at some stage to some of the researchers you have at La Trobe supporting this because um, I know you know we have a lot from the the Institute of Molecular Science out there, and um, they're doing some great stuff. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah. Thanks so much for seeing. Good no, to see you. Thank you. Yeah. Folks, we're going to have to hand over in a second to the team from Eat It. Dr. Linden, good to see you. You too, Dr. Shane. Good to have you back. Oh, yeah. I took a whole week off. One in like five years. You know how it is. Um, every now and then you, you have to take a week off. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just to remind people that you're important. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's why I took 18 months off. <laughs> I, I needed more time to remind people. <laughs> but hopefully you all remember. Well, Dr. Laurie, it's great to have you back in the studio. We, we did remember you like while you were away. <laughs> it's great to be back. <clears throat> yeah, it's good to see you. And we'll, we'll see you in a couple of weeks or something when you're back again. Liv's been doing our Twitter feed, folks, if you want to follow along. Until next week, though, we're going to hand over to Cam who's out in the green room. I can see him directing traffic from where I'm sitting. Thanks so much for listening to Einstein and Go-Go. Remember, science is everywhere, and we'll chat to you again next week. This has been a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.